One of those voices we're going to hear from here in a moment um, is Amy Littlefield, the abortion access correspondent for The Nation, uh, formerly a producer at Democracy Now!, a longtime friend of The Independent. Uh, she's been doing great coverage, in particular recently, of the terrible legislation that uh, was approved in Texas called SB8 that pretty much eliminates uh, abortion protections for women in uh, Texas and uh, creates a bizarre system of uh, bounty hunters uh, to enforce these uh, these new statutes that a number of uh, other red states are uh, looking to, to mimic, and the Supreme Court hasn't uh, done anything to stop it. And uh, so we're really excited to hear from Amy about about the latest from Texas, but also the, the national implications of this and why people uh, uh, people even here in a, a very liberal state like New York uh, cannot uh, rest easy. And uh, Amy, thank you so much for joining us on 99.5 FM. It's so great to be with you, John and Amba. As you pointed out, this feels like home since I used to work as a producer at Democracy Now! I'm very familiar with that WBAI uh, fundraising number. <laughs> so <laughs> it's great to be with you. Yeah, well, we we hope to make it a familiar number to uh, everybody that's uh, listening here on the on the station um, so let's uh, let's start with uh, what's happening in Texas. Can you just quickly review uh, why this is uh, uh, SB8 is uh, such uh, disastrous legislation as yeah. well as the, the resistance that it's already uh, uh, facing, uh, especially from uh, people on the ground in Texas? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think as you point out, Texas SB 8, this legislation that has gone into effect as of September 1st in Texas is really giving us a preview of both what our country is going to look like when Roe v. Wade is overhauled and and overturned by the Supreme Court, which is likely to happen imminently in in the coming months and years, Um, and also debuting what the, you know, fierce and furious resistance to these anti-abortion attacks looks like. Um, So I can tell you, you know, I did some reporting on September 1st, which was the day that this law went into effect. And as you point out, the law bans abortion after fetal or embryonic cardiac activity is detected, which happens around five to seven weeks of pregnancy, which is, you know, between one and three weeks after a missed period, right? So in the earliest stages of pregnancy. Um, and and allows any private citizen to basically enforce a, a ten thousand dollar bounty under uh, onto you know anyone who violates this law by by helping someone get access to an abortion. Um, and what we've seen is basically uh, a mass migration of patients outside of the state of Texas, which, you know, one tenth of women of reproductive age live in the state. So, you know, the Guttmacher Institute has said basically Roe v. Wade is functionally meaningless for a tenth of, of the you know women of reproductive age in this country. That's how big the state of Texas is. And this mass exodus from Texas is leading to huge waits, you know, waits of weeks in other other neighboring states where people are having to go to abortion clinics. So, you know, I talked to a clinic in Oklahoma where last week they told me they were booked through the end of September. So you have this cascade effect where basically abortion access all through the South is, you know, backed up. And abortion is obviously a very time sensitive, you know, need um, because it becomes riskier and more expensive the further along in a pregnancy you get. Um, and so, you know, I've had, you know, I spoke with abortion funding organizations, which if you want to learn more about the grassroots activism going on around um, 
abortion access in Texas, check out some of the abortion funds in the state, like the Lilith Fund, um, Jane's Due Process, which supports uh, minors who are seeking access to abortion in Texas. Um, and, you know, one of these um, activists the with the Lilith Fund broke down and started crying on the phone with me on September 1st. Um, she had been waiting up all night, hoping that the Supreme Court was going to stop this law before it went into effect. And that didn't happen. And so what we've seen is really a human rights crisis, you know, where um, people who can afford to or who can secure, you know, the help of abortion funds um, are going as far afield as Seattle um, to get access to abortion care Um, and people who can't um, get that help or who can't. you know, figure out childcare or transportation or all of the very expensive, you know, layers of need that that exists that stand between someone and abortion. In a situation like this, you know, those folks may be forced to remain pregnant against their will, or they may turn to, you know, this sort of robust underground network of extra legal medication abortion, which is, you know, alive and thriving in Texas. Um, we have this sort of remarkable situation, and I wrote an article today for the New Republic about this, where, you know, Mexico's Supreme Court last week declared that in that country, um, abortion is no longer a crime. And you have these sort of informal pill distribution networks um, that exist between Mexico and Texas. And then you have this area, you know, this vast expanding array of of options in terms of online access to medication abortion outside of our sort of legal system and outside of the reach of Texas law. And so many, many people, and we have no idea how many are are turning to those extra legal options as well, um, which, you know, potentially in in some cases can incur legal risks for for the people who are doing that. So um, that's sort of what things look like right now. And, you know, it is sort of a, a preview of of the future in a lot of ways, but also I think like, you know, abortion activists in the South would say they've been dealing with a crisis, not quite of this magnitude, but but part of this sort of dire situation um, has been building in states like Texas for a long time. And, and speaking of that, talk a little bit more about um, the inability for the surrounding states to actually handle any overflow. Um when it comes to abortion clinics and backed up appointments? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen um, a drop in the number, especially of independent abortion clinics um, in recent years. Um, A a lot of those clinics have closed. You know, in Texas, about half of those clinics closed after the last round of restrictive legislation in in 2013. Um, And in surrounding states, too, it's very hard for independent abortion clinics to keep their doors open, given the, you know, raft of um, anti-choice restrictions we've seen that have made that harder and harder. Um, so we have fewer clinics, which means that they're, you know, when you have one state that that tries to choke off Texas access the way Texas is done, it creates this sort of cascade effect. And I think clinics and abortion funds and, and grassroots activists in states like New Mexico and Oklahoma uh, have really been working hard to build up as much capacity as they can to handle these patients. Um, but they're dealing with limited resources and with sort of series of successive cuts by um, anti-abortion legislators that that have hindered those efforts. Right. Now, 
the Republicans control, I think, something like 27 state governments uh, in this country. And um, is it is it true that other states are looking to mimic uh, Texas's legal strategy? Because I think the sort of the breakthrough that conservatives came up with in Texas with this bounty system, mm-hmm. which means that government officials are not enforcing their own law. It gives the the courts a way of saying, well, we can't, uh, you know, sanction the government of Texas because there's no state official who's enforcing this law. And so it seems like conservatives have come with this, you know, bizarre workaround and uh, are other states looking to to imitate this? Oh, without a doubt. I think we've already seen Republican states say that they're going to take up legislation like this. I mean, I think at this point we're seeing, you know, anti-abortion state legislatures really throwing anything that sticks that they think might stick at the Supreme Court. Um, This law was carefully designed by, you know, Jonathan Mitchell um, and his anti-abortion allies in the Texas state legislature and Texas Right to Life to withstand a court challenge because Texas has tried before to shut down access to abortion and they've been unsuccessful because their efforts were transparently unconstitutional. Um, And this law is also transparently unconstitutional, but as you point out, because of the way they wrote it, where it works through the civil litigation system, it was very hard to um, block before it came into effect. It was sort of designed to be court proof. Um, and so without a doubt, I think we'll see other states now take this up with the goal of sort of ending access to abortion right now, you know, immediately. But the long game here is really to um, overturn Roe v. Wade and to allow states to ban um, and potentially criminalize abortion um, you know, because we no longer have the this, you know, half century old Supreme Court decision saying that they are not allowed to do that. And so that's been the long game. And we're seeing sort of the culmination of half a century of legal strategy by the Christian right aimed at um, overturning that precedent. And and in the run of this of this long game, where do more liberal or, or um, sorry, liberal states like New York, or California fall, where do we fall when it comes to risk? Yeah, it's a great question. And I mean, I think when people are looking for what to do, like a lot of the attention is on Texas right now, because that's where the emergency is right now. Um, but it's it's important to focus on what's going on in our own backyards and, and what's going on with our you know local politics. Um, there are, and I'm working on a story right now for the nation about this, there are a lot of efforts to advance proactive legislation to expand abortion access. And that's happened successfully in, in states like Massachusetts, where I live and in New York. Um, so paying attention to is your state legislature, you know, do you, are there still laws on the books that, you know, from before Roe, or there's still laws on the books that, you know, prevent people from having abortions later in pregnancy, for example, um, and trying to repeal some of those measures and, and expand abortion access. Um, some of the, the most innovative efforts around that have had to do with public funding of abortion. So since 1976, we've had uh, a federal policy called the Hyde Amendment in place, which bans public, bans federal funding of abortions, um, except in cases of rape or life endangerment of the pregnant person. And what that means is that Medicaid patients in most states um, don't have 
funding for abortion through their insurance. They have to pay for it. They have to raise hundreds of dollars for it out of pocket, which is prohibitive for most people. Um, New York happens to be a state where at least last I checked, Medicaid does cover abortion. And activists there with the New York Abortion Access Fund and their allies were able to get um, a measure passed to actually get public funding for for abortion um, for their efforts to you know fund abortion for people who still struggle to get access to care, even with the the Medicaid policy in effect. And and so, you know, I think paying attention to policies at the city and state level um, is very important, especially because states, I mean, as we saw, you know, before Roe v. Wade, New York really was a destination state for people who would come from all over the country um, and fly in to if they had the means to seek legal abortion there. And so um, I think activists in New York are are gearing up for the possibility that that's going to happen again. Right. And talk a little bit more about the long game here, because my sense is that the right to life people may be looking even beyond Roe versus Wade, because that's something they're on the cusp of achieving, especially now that uh, Amy Coney Barrett became the the ninth uh, justice uh, last year after the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And um, she's super conservative, Catholic, almost the the handmaiden uh, justice. Um, uh, but the longer game, could it be, I mean, I hear some chatter in, in, in right-wing circles that the next time they have full control of Congress and the White House of trying to pass you know, fetal protection laws that would criminalize abortion anywhere in the United States, essentially uh, federalize it. So I can't, I can't imagine them being like, okay, we, we prevailed in 30 Republican states and we're just going to let abortion right. continue to happen in the rest of the country. Right, right. I mean, and I think you'll hear, you know, Republicans talk about making this a state issue and letting states do what they need to do, you know, to ban abortion. And I think that is what we're likely to see in the near term, right? If Roe falls or is gutted beyond recognition, then about, you know, half of states are probably going to move to ban abortion. Um, and, you know, we're going to see this sort of patchwork of access which already exists, right? Care is already dependent on where you live in in this country, and it's going to just deepen um, even more. Um, I do think there are some strands of the anti-abortion movement that want to see fetal personhood, that want to see, you know, the fetus recognized as a unique human being with rights that are on par with, you know, the person carrying it. Um, And, you know, one major question is where does criminalization of the pregnant person and where does criminalization of anyone who helps someone get an abortion, where does that fit into that picture? Because, because self-managed abortion with pills is pretty readily available, even though a lot of people don't know about it, you know, at some point if states are really intent on um, ending access to abortion, they're not going to really have an alternative besides going after people who are pregnant. And so that is sort of one theory about what the end game could look like. Um, I think it's going to depend partly on how um, the reproductive health and justice movement responds to these threats and how politically unpalatable it seems to, you know, give rights to fetuses and to criminalize people who seek abortions. Yeah, and in in, in uh, Republican America, only uh, fetuses and corporations will have rights. So, uh, <laughs> the rest of us, not so much. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrifying thought. I, also, um, just something I want to delve into a little bit: the the 
sort of the deeper forces that are animating the the anti-choice movement. And there's a lot of surface level contradictions in, in what they do because they're deeply opposed to birth control, mm-hmm. to any form of uh, sex education except abstinence uh, education. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also opposed uh, often to subsidized childcare, you know, social safety net uh, measures that would make it easier for women and families to raise the children. Right. right. Uh, they give birth to. Right. What's this, this sort of the going on here uh, with this sort of this patriarchal Christian right wing forces mm-hmm. and, and, you know, what's, what, what do you think drive drives this? Cause it certainly doesn't seem to be c- concerned for human life, given how they uh, act the rest of the time. Right. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're sort of past the point where we should be talking about like hypocrisy, right. As if, um, you know, Republicans only care about abortion and, and, you know, this is just a, a glitch in the system that they forgot about birth control or something. I mean, I think we have to zoom out and, and the whole project makes sense if you understand that it was never about the sanctity of life, right. It was always about controlling women's place in society. Um, it was always about sort of this worldview of the, white nuclear family, you know, heterosexual (laughs) nuclear family and opposing birth control has always been part of that project. And I think the way we're seeing it emerging is, you know, conflating things like IUDs and, you know, emergency contraception with abortion, right? Like twisting the science to somehow claim that contraception is abortion. Um, And, you know, opposing the rights of, of LGBTQ people and trans people and all of the state legislation that we're seeing attacking the rights of trans people is all part of this project as well, because, you know, trans people don't exist in this, you know, landscape that, that the Christian right is imagining. Um, it's about sort of the power of, of wealthy white, you know, cis men. Um, and I think it's important to look at the fact that white supremacy has been part of the anti-abortion movement for as long as it's existed, right? Like, it's no coincidence that we see um, people wearing, you know, Make America Great Again hats who were in Washington, D.C. for the March for Life, like, you know, having run-ins with people of color outside, you know, in in the state capitol. It's no co- uh, coincidence that when we look at who was participating in the January 6th riot at the capitol, we see a lot of uh, popular, recognizable anti-abortion extremists who have, you know, been harassing people outside of abortion clinics or even firebombing them, you know. Um, there are deep connections between, um you know, racism, misogyny, and um, the anti-abortion movement in this country um, that are like not counterintuitive. <laughs> it's kind of part of the wider project. Okay, well, we'll have to leave it there. But Amy Littlefield, the abortion access correspondent for the nation, thank you so much for joining us this evening on WBAI. Thanks, John.